But if you have a Bible, go grab it and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 3 to 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in the pew back in front of you. And Romans is about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. It's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And you're looking for the big number 12 and the small number 3. And we're continuing on in this series in the book of Romans where we've simply entitled it, What is God Like? Because we want to understand the nature and the character of God, knowing that if we can see God rightly, then we can begin to see ourselves rightly and begin to have some sort of stability in such unchanging times. And so we've got to look fast and we've got to look intently at who God is so that that can begin to change our minds and our hearts and our lives. So a couple months ago, my family and I went camping down in the York area. There's a state park down there, and so uh, for about four or five days, we went camping. And when we drove down there, before we went, a friend of ours told us that when you're there, you're going to see this little bug. Apparently, somebody, the story goes, somebody bought a box of rocks from Korea, got it shipped, and as they opened the box, this bug flew out. And now the bug is permeating uh, all of the eastern seaboard and has reached southern Pennsylvania. And so we were told that whenever we saw the bug, the state wants you to kill the bug. So we went on about a six-mile hike, and we got about three miles in, and there's this rocky area that we just kind of, uh, it was underneath the trees, and we just took a rest and just enjoyed God's creation. And as we did, we began to see the bug that they were talking about. This beautiful black and red bug called the lanternfly. That apparently is everywhere. Because my kids had fun for about 30 to 45 minutes hopping around from rock to rock, killing these bugs. Because if they did it, they are so invasive that they will take over the trees and kill and they were just everywhere. And it, it, it just seemed like they killed them all. And here comes 5,000 more to descend right where we were sitting. What's interesting is, I got thinking about that. Imagine for a moment, if instead of opening that box of rocks, and this lanternfly jumps out. Imagine for a moment if that gentleman would have opened a box in the love of God. And the love of God had so permeated everything, everywhere, that no matter where you turn around, you could not help but to be infested with the love of God. You see, if we've actually understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we've actually understood the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you and I, what Paul is going to show us today is that so sh that love should so permeate our lives that it extends outward, and that we as a church should be the kind of people that that love should permeate us and extend outward, that no one here or in our community could ever go without seeing and experiencing the love of God in our life. The problem is, is, I find that so often we love the love of God. 
We love it so much that we want to close that box and keep it for ourselves. And we forget that the love of God is not just to be in us, but to actually flow through us to others. That's what Paul's going to show us this morning. In fact, his main point is going to be this, that God's comprehensive love, meaning his wide, vast, and glorious love, must permeate God's people. That's my hope for us as a church, and that's Paul's hope this morning in our passage, is that, that we understand God's love to the point that it permeates us, and it fills our gathering together, and the overflow of that is our community seeing and experiencing that love in our lives today. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. As we do, would you stand with me as I read God's Word? We stand just as a way to honor the fact that the God of the universe is speaking to us in this moment. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who in, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Praise be to God. You may be seated. So we've been looking at this letter to the church at Rome for almost, uh, for actually a year now. And the reason that we're looking at this is so that we would see who God is, that it would change our hearts, our minds, and as a result, it would overflow into our lives. That we would actually, in some ways, have a map in, in how we live our life, and that map would come out of the love of Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at this idea of, of who God is, because when we begin to cherish God as he is, as the song goes, the things of the world grow strangely good. So we want to see that begin to transform our lives because as we live for Jesus, we end up with greater joy. 
Uh, Jim Elliott was a uh, missionary, American missionary, to a tribal people in Ecuador and who was killed for his faith. And in the middle of that, before he died, Jim Elliott was famous for saying, he is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see that? In the middle of everything, he had his eyes so set on Jesus Christ that he could say, the world doesn't matter, but if I give up the world and get Christ, I'm going to gain what I can never lose. And so Paul wants us to see that reality of how good the gospel actually is. And so for 11 chapters, he's explaining that the gospel is the truth that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and that the righteous live by faith. That's incredibly good news for us, church, because we are not righteous. God has a standard, and all have fallen short of that standard. And yet, in the middle of our failure, we read in chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes that God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we're still sinners, not when I had my life cleaned up. Not when I had everything put together, but when I was still a sinner, Christ died for us. He died for me. The reality is, is that gospel now should change us. We saw last week that the moment we entered chapter 12, we, the whole letter hinged. That we went from learning about what God has done to Paul saying, Therefore, by the mercies of God, we are now to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are now to no longer be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And today he's going to show us a little bit more of what that transformation and what that renewal looks like. And he's going to start by just reminding us of the foundational truth and in three ways that this renewal should take place in our lives individually, which then it transforms us corporately. So let's look at these truths. The first foundational truth that Paul shows us is simply God's comprehensive love. And we've got to be a people that see and cherish the love of God before any action in our life. And so notice how Paul shows us this. He actually shows us this in an in a interesting and kind of roundabout way. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For by that grace given to me. Everything he says from this point on, he is grounding in this grace that Paul has, and that is the launching point into the commands that he's now about to give us. And if you're thinking, you're, you're trying to understand, well, what is grace, right? Grace is this undeserved gift. But we've got to be careful. Because did you see what Paul said? By the grace given to me, this isn't a grace that you and I receive. This is a special grace that Paul receives. What's that special grace? Well, he 
Keep your finger there and flip back to Romans chapter 1. In verse 5, we see this special grace that Paul was given that helps us to understand the comprehensive love of God through Christ Jesus. We're starting in the middle of a sentence, but in, in the midst of that, Paul is talking about Jesus, and then he says, through whom, that's Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So what's this grace that Paul's saying? It's a grace to be an apostle. Well, what's an apostle? It's one of the specially gifted messengers of God to take the good news of Jesus and start churches around the world. There were 13 of them. Paul was one of them. But if you think about that, that's incredibly crazy that Paul would be one of them. I would just read the book of Acts. Starting in Acts chapter 7, you begin to see the story of Paul's life. Stephen, an, an early church leader, is uh, on trial, essentially. He's about to be arrested, and he begins to proclaim how all of the first part of your Bible points to Jesus Christ, and the Jews hate it. They hate it so much, they pick up stones and begin to kill him. And in chapter 8, verse 1, we read that there's a man named Saul that gives approval to the murder. If you continue on in chapter 8, you see that Saul actually received papers that he could go travel to another city called Damascus, arrest Christians, and bind them, and bring them back so they could stand trial for believing in Jesus Christ. And as he's on his way to Damascus, he is literally blinded by the light and knocked off his high horse. And in the middle of that, in chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus simply proclaims, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in subsequent chapters, we see Saul come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as he comes to faith in Jesus Christ, his name is changed to Paul. And he's sent out and he plants churches all across modern-day Turkey, Greece, and he's writing this letter to the church at Rome because he desires to go to Spain to start churches there. His life is radically transformed by the reality that Jesus is no longer dead. Jesus is not a good prophet. He's not a good teacher. He is the Holy One of God. He is God in the flesh. He lived perfectly every spot that you and I have failed. And yet, the Bible says that the wage of sin is death, which means the payment for my sin means that I deserve to die. If you're thinking logically, you're thinking, okay, so if I obey correctly, then I shouldn't die. And yet, at the end of Jesus' life, he willingly gives up his life. He willingly dies goes to the cross. So the wrath of God for your sin, for my sin, might be poured out upon Jesus, that now by faith in Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life. That just as Jesus rose from the grave, that life now can be given to us, 
And that righteousness can now be given to us so that by faith in Jesus, we can be declared right. So much so that Paul says in chapter 8, verse 1, if you're in Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. You might be able to have a list of 50 things that I do wrong, but the day I stand before Jesus, he's going to look at that list and say, there's nothing there. I paid for it. It's erased. It's gone. Church, I don't know of a greater story and greater news for your life than to build upon that news that there's no condemnation. You might have walked in here this morning feeling guilt or feeling shame or just feeling the weight of the world on you. And in the middle of that, Jesus says, it's done. It's taken care of. You're free. That's why we sing, I'm forgiven. Because you were forgiven. I'm accepted. Because you were Church, do you know that truth for yourself? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ in here this morning, I want you to know it doesn't matter the past. You might think, man, you don't know my past. Uh, just give me a second and let me explain the Bible to you. Moses, murder. David, almost like a mobster. He doesn't do the murder, but he hires somebody else to do the murder. On top of everything. Get worse than that, don't you? Yeah, by the grace of God, it's forgiven when we receive. So I just want to plead with you to come with faith in Christ today, trust in Him today, just lay all of your sin at His feet and just believe in Christ. That if you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, we've got to do everything we can to remind each other of this glorious gospel. I'm coaching uh, my son's football teams, and one of the things I've noticed is that uh, when one person gets discouraged, others start to get discouraged. And so as a coach or as another player, part of the role on the team is to encourage each other. Hey, we've got this. Hey, you're doing a good job. How much more so in the church? Uh, we to encourage each other. Not that you've got this, but that Jesus does. That's what we gather in the truth. We want to encourage each other and remind each other of the love of Jesus Christ for us. And when that foundation is set, it's like the fuel to the engine of our lives. And it begins to fuel the way in which we live. And Paul shows us three ways that it should fuel in our lives. So let's look at these as well. The first way it should feel, which is our second point, that God's corporate people must love with their heads. We've got to have a mindset that is not thinking about ourselves. It's so tempting, isn't it? Our mindset often thinks way too much about ourselves. We're prone to talk about ourselves. We're prone on social media to post about ourselves. We're prone to take any sort of discussion and somehow bring it back to our awesomeness and 
and how good we are. And yet Paul shows us a different way. And it starts with our minds. Again, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Out of this foundational truth, he says, I say to everyone among you, this isn't to select people, this isn't to those who you think struggle, this is to everyone. Everyone needs to check their heart and, and be honest with themselves. And, and what does he want us to do? He says to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Why would he do that? Because we are a people that are prone to gauge ourselves and the way we're living life by one of two standards. Either a standard that we create and we measure our life against that and we have a good day if we've achieved what we believe we should. Or it's a terrible day if we failed that standard. Or we create a standard that's horizontal and we begin to look at other people and we compare our strengths with their weaknesses. And we start to feel good about this. Look at me. I can't believe that they would do that. Well, let's reverse it. Let's, let's take your weakness and their strength. Let's see how that works. Why is that? Because we're so prone to want to prove our worth and our, our value in anything other than Jesus Christ. Because when we have to go to Jesus, we feel so helpless. It feels out of our control. So we'd rather control it and, and look higher of ourselves. But notice how we're supposed to think. He says, rather we need to think with sober judgment. Church, we've got to be a people who actually see ourselves better. That means we have to have emotional and intellectual and uh, psychological intelligence, where we actually see ourselves rightly, where we're introspective, looking at our hearts and saying, what's going on inside of me? So we can actually see ourselves correctly. Because he wants us to see with sober judgment. Then he says, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, there was some debate about this measure of faith. One commentator, Tom Schreiner, just simply say, states that this is the amount of faith that one has. And this faith is faith that God has given. It's not a faith that you have somehow mustered up. It's a faith that's been given to you by God. So you can't walk around thinking, look at my faith. It's all in like, think about how crazy and foolish this would be if I walked around and started telling you I'm better than LeBron James. You've seen me play basketball, you know there's not even anywhere a hint of nearness to that. Or for, for those of you from some area, if I walked around and said, I could take Tim Boach any day, right? UFC fighter, like, I could take him any day. You look, you look at me and think, that, that, that's going to be fun. I'm not thinking with sober judgment. 
I need to analyze myself and analyze what God has given me. He, and he's not giving me strength and he's not giving me athletic ability. I've said this before, but there's a reason this whole circle has no cords around it. Because I don't want to trip in front of you. So I've got to think soberly about myself and, and think about the ways God has gifted me and use those. Rather than trying to act like I'm better. And when we do that, we can begin to look at each other more accurately. You are no longer somebody I have to prove myself to, or I have to use to prove my value, but rather you're someone I can love. I can pick. Why does that matter? Well, look at what he says in verse 4. He says that we're one body. Paul tells us something similar. 1 Corinthians 12, he tells a story how we're one body, that we have a hand and foot and eyes and ears. It would be foolish for the hand to say to the foot, I don't need you, or the ears to say to the eyes, I don't need you. And think about how creepy it would look if I had no feet but five hands. I don't need a bunch of hands, I need two hands and two feet. Paul's saying the same thing in the church because he says we're one body and we have many members, but the members, notice, they all have the same function. That's good. You don't need 50 people who can preach. You need a couple. But then we need a couple who can serve and put together slides, who can sing. Some of you have already told me, never sing. So we need somebody else to sing. We need to use our gifts. Because we don't all have the same function. But look at verse 5. So we, he, he clarifies, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. You know, one of the struggles we have as an American culture, an American church, is that we believe we can do life on our own. We believe that the, our relationship with Jesus is just me and Jesus. There's a personal aspect to it. You personally need to believe in Jesus. But once you come to faith in Jesus, you're never left alone. We're called to be a part of a body of Christ. To be members of one another. To be tied together. So we might be one together, that we can be committed to each other. And that we can show this commitment and love to one another. So how does this love play out in our lives? I think for us in this day and age, one of the biggest ways that we can actually uh, show this kind of love is the way in which we talk to one another. Right? I mean, Turn on the news, turn on social media, it just feels like everybody's at each other constantly. Imagine the kind of church we would be if we were careful with the way in which we talk to, with, and about one another. Now the Proverbs reminds us of this. Proverbs 18, 2 tells us, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his own opinion. Church, that sounds a lot like the world, isn't it? Everybody's got their opinion. So 
So how are we operating this way? I'm being shown that we're listening clearly. Proverbs 26, 20 tells us that for lack of wood, a fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. That as we begin to whisper about one another, division becomes rampant. Isn't that the world we live in? Church, maybe humble ourselves and realize we don't have all the answers. I don't have all the gifts. You don't have all the gifts. We need each other. And it starts by not whispering about each other, but it starts by just humbling ourselves. We're going back to the Lord. We're worshiping Him. And when we do that, it begins to flow into what Paul shows us next. And that is, God's corporate people must love with their hands. That it doesn't just stay in our minds, but it must flow through us into the way in which we live our daily lives, where we use our gifts for the Lord. Look at verse 6. He continues, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, I've said this before, but I always find it so ironic. Shaquille O'Neal, this 300-pound, 7-foot-tall guy, stands on his tiptoes and puts a ball in a hoop, and he claps for himself. Man, if you're 7-foot-tall and standing on your tiptoes and can't put an orange little ball through a hoop, you've got some other things to discuss. Why is he bragging about a gift? But he did nothing to get. He woke up and his bones just started expanding and growing and poof. How much more so is it foolish for us to look at my gift? No, look at the Lord. He's the giver of that gift. And out of that gift begins to serve others with it. Because that's what he says, right? Let us use them. Church, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't care if you have been a Christian for three seconds, three years, three decades, you have a gift given by God, and we need you to use your gift for us to be what God wants us to be. Don't care. You might think, I'm not that smart. It's okay. I'm not that skilled. It's okay. You have a gift. Paul shows us some of these gifts that he wants us to now employ in the use of the church. And we won't have time today, but 1 Corinthians 12 shows us other gifts. I want to encourage you to look at But Let's look quickly at these gifts. He says, prophecy. We always think of prophecy as foretelling the future. Like, I'm going to tell you now that you're all going to Bob Evans' village. I'm a prophet, right? If some of you go, I'm a prophet. That's not what he's talking about. Prophecy does include foretelling, but prophecy also includes foretelling. This idea where the prophets in the Old Testament would get God's word, would look at the life of the people of Israel and say, that's sin, go back to God's word and bring it and say, you're sinning, and if you continue to sin, here's the result of this. Almost like an attorney. Prosecuting the people to wake them up. To the reality of the gospel, to the reality of living for God. And Paul's saying, if you have prophecy, use it. 
portions here today. It says verse 7, if serving, those are the people that do all the behind the scenes work, you know? When you go to the bathroom and you use the soap dispenser, nine times out of ten, you have no idea. Until that dispenser's out, then all of a sudden you think, who didn't fill it? Somebody filled it. The other nine times, that might be your role. Serve. In service, they are serving. The one who teaches, and is teaching, it's what I'm trying to do right now. The one who exhorts is exhortation. What's well, exhortation? It's this encouragement. It's where you spend time with somebody and they just encourage you in the Lord and you leave thinking, man, I'm full. Man, I want more of Jesus. It's the music. The one who contributes and his generosity. It's it's where we give above and beyond what God has called us to give. We say, just be generous. Enjoy that thing. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This, this acts of mercy is the, the one who sees someone in need and, and just needs it. The rest of us are just popping down through life and don't even recognize that there's a need. But you see it. And you want to meet it. Paul saying, great, we need you. Use that gift. But how do we know our gifts? You know, the number one way that you can figure out your gift is being in community. Testing your gift and allowing other people to speak into your life saying, you're gifted or you should probably not be that. Ever watch the early stages of American Idol? There are some people without friends in the early stages of American Idol. Because nobody loved them enough to sit them down and say, this is a terrible idea. You are going on national television and you're about to embarrass yourself and your family with how terrible you are at singing. So none of their friends had the fort. Maybe they're all just in the corner laughing, you know, this is going to be funny. Right? And they go on American Idol, they think they've got a gift, and it's like, please don't. But they're a community that loved them, that would have been fed. So we need to be a community that loves us and helps us. And when we do that, Paul then lands in this section, he lands on the final point, and that's God's corporate people must love with their hearts. It's built on the foundation of the love of God to us. It leads to our minds being transformed, our hands being used for the work of God, and that's because our heart is changed. Look at verse 9. Paul says, let love be genuine. This is a deep-seated love. We're not self-seeking it's not about what we can give, but rather it's about what we can, and it's not about what we can get, but rather what we can give. It's an authentic love. You know, not this two-faced, you know, which is kind of hard, right? It's so much easier to just kind of put on a smile and fake it and just kind of go through the motions. But Paul says, no, let's have a love that's genuine. And when we have a love that's genuine and it matches the Savior's love, 
It should lead into what he says next. Abhor what is evil. If our love matches the love of Jesus, we're going to hate what's evil. We're going to hate the evil that's in our life, and we're going to want to push that evil out of our life. But notice, notice the context. He's not talking just about the evil in your life. He's talking about the evil in other people's lives. Church, this is one thing that boggles my mind. I'm honest, it boggles my mind that we can see a friend or a family member in massive sin. And we can see it, and we can understand it, and then we sit and we say, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit. I don't get that. Because when I read the Bible, it tells me that the Holy Spirit's living inside of me. And if I can see it, and it is harming my friend, then isn't the most loving thing to do is to talk to my friend and point that out and point them back to Jesus Christ. May I go so far to say that when we know it's massive sin and the Spirit has told us this and we fail to say something, what we're actually doing is telling the Holy Spirit I'm not joining in what you want. Saying that, you should actually hate the evil that's among us and point people back to the hope of Christ. And we can do that when he says in verse 9 hold fast to what is good. But how do you hold fast? How do you know it's good? You've got to be a people who believe in Christ. We're understanding truths of God. We're listening to sermons. We're, we're seeking to know more of this truth. And then we hold fast to it. Husbands, boyfriends, like, have you ever gotten uh, your wife or girlfriend's flowers and it's like so pretty and beautiful? And like by day three, it's all the petals are everywhere, right? What happened? I bought you beautiful flowers. That should have lasted at least a year, right? And so often, that's when we think about the truth in our life. I read truth once, seven days ago. That should last me the whole time. And then it withers, and the world crushes in on us. Church, we need to hold fast, not just once, but ongoing, every day. Because when we do that, it, it then propels us in a verse. And we're able to love one another with a brotherly affection. We're able to look at one another and see each other as family. And this is hard for us, isn't it? Because we've got a city called Brotherly Love, and every time I go there, I don't see much brotherly love. And some of us come from families where we're like, that's not love. But this is a love that Paul's saying that is sacrificial, that, that cares for one another, that's, that's committed through thick and thin. And Paul says that when we come to faith in Christ, this is an eternal bond. And we should love one another with this affection that actually leads us to outdo one another. It's showing honor. That we don't wake up thinking, how can you honor me? But we wake up saying, how do I honor you? How do I serve you? How do I care? 
for you. When we intentionally think about how to serve one another. You know, I think what would be so flabbergasting to me that if we actually understood the gospel so much, if you don't know, at 9.45, volunteers gather. We pray and we talk about the different things, elements of the service. Imagine if the love of God sows something to our hearts that we wanted to outdo one another and show an honor that we just said, man, we're going to fight to get here so that somebody else can stay home. No, 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 you stay home. I want to be there. I want to serve you so you can sleep home. Think about the honor that you would show one another. And he tells us, says, in verse 11, that as we're showing this, we shouldn't be slothful in our zeal. And we get this, right? Because some days we're ready to follow Christ, and other days we're just following. We want to live each day having our hearts stirred. Because he shows us how we, we're not slothful in zeal. He shows us by being fervent in spirits. How do you fight slothfulness? You're fervent in spirits. How are you fervent in spirits? You serve the Lord. You're, you can fight slothfulness in your life by serving the Lord. By identifying what stirs your heart for God and regularly doing that. So every day you're waking up as a new opportunity to serve the Lord. And that and the only way we can begin to do that is what Paul shows us in verse 12. He tells us to rejoice in hope. That our eyes are not focused on what we see here, but are lifted to eternity. That we see that Jesus is reigning. He is ruling. He is going to come back. That the feelings that you have now will not last. But King Jesus is going to reign forever. And so we rejoice in hope of him coming back. And church, we need that. Because notice what he says. He says, be patient in tribulation. It's not be patient if you have tribulation, it's coming. And the only way I can endure tribulation is if my hope is, and my eyes are lifted to a hope that's not here, but it's on Jesus. And the way we foster that, he says, to be constant in prayer. Are you a person of prayer? Like when everything around you falls apart, is your first thought, let me get a list, and let me figure out how to get through this, or is your first thought, let me get on my knees and pray. Because <coughs> I can't do it. If the Lord's not working. Church, may we be a people who are constant in prayer. And when we do that, we begin to re-engage in verse 13, where Paul shows us that we're called to contribute to the needs of saints. You see, when we are tied back to Jesus, and when we are filled up with the gospel and grace of Jesus, it then propels us back out to look outward and say, who can I help? Who can I contribute to? To serve. And as we contribute, notice how he ends. 
and seek to show hospitality. This is us looking at our lives. This is us saying how do we sacrifice for the good of others and allowing them to enter into our home. Church, how awesome would it be if the families here, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of singles here. I want to encourage the families to open up their home and invite the singles into their home for dinner. Get to know them, not individually, but as a family, get to know them. Or for the older people in the congregation, open your home for the younger and just love them. We think we know what we're doing, and we're regularly messing up. We need your wisdom to speak into our lives. May we be a people who are hospitable and sacrificing to one another. Church, just imagine if we understood the love of God in Christ Jesus, who was the greatest host ever. He actually left his house. He actually came to our house drove his vehicle up the cross, put us in that vehicle, and then drove, is driving us back to his house where he tells us in John 6, he's preparing many rooms for us. As we see at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, there is this beautiful banquet feast ready for us. If that's prepared for us, shouldn't that now propel us? To want to prepare for one another, to love one another with our heads and with our hands, with our hearts. Has the love of God so permeated your soul that it overflows to those people? That's Paul's vision for your life, for our life together. Happens when we look back to the love of God through Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word and the good gift that it is to us. That 2,000 years later, we're still learning, still growing, needing to be reoriented. Because so often our love is focused on our desires and our wants. So Father, I pray, we confess that we so often are people who love people and are poor ones good. Pray that you change that in us. So often we are people who think highly of ourselves rather than looking at how we might serve others. And yet, by your grace and through the gospel, you give us a way out. And so, Father, we thank you. We pray now that our hearts might be unified, that we might love the way that you love us. Grace us, precious Lord. Amen.